Okay, <clears throat> this is, this is going to be interesting for a few reasons. My voice is basically gone. I don't know if it would help to have this. Does this help? I don't know if I can raise my voice very much. So um, We're going to keep this fairly short for obvious reasons and, and also because there's, um, there's a bit of a simplicity to the passage we're going to cover that I don't want to get swallowed up in too much of my talking. Um, but I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to read. Uh, we're going to read just five verses, and we're going to focus on just two. But starting in verse one, I'm just going to read down to the end of verse five. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love, as Christ also loved us and gave Himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you, as is proper for the saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For, for know and recognize this, every sexual, sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Would you pray with me? God, we need you to be present with us right now. Um, if we are to understand anything of what you've revealed about yourself, we need your spirit to open our hearts and make it, make it true to us. So we ask that you would be here opening us up, stirring us up, Lord Jesus, to know you and the God that you reveal to us. Pray you would strengthen me, give my, my voice strength and our ears uh, openness and clarity uh, that your truth would be known and your son would be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I um, I like I like large chunks of scripture, large sections. I like um, as we've been exploring with Paul his propensity for long-winded, run-on sentences. Um, I like to see how Paul builds an idea, but I also really like how Paul sometimes surprises you with some simplicity and clarity, and in this case gives us a couple of verses that essentially boil down to giving us what it means to be a Christian. The entire essence of what it means to be a Christian is given to us in these two very beautiful verses. And I would give you, I will give you some application here right at the, at the beginning, is uh, fill your heart and your mind with these two verses. Memorize them, meditate on them, repeat them to yourself, to your spouse, to your kids, your brothers and sisters here in church, at home, and you will have, I think, if you truly begin to grasp and understand and believe these things, you will have nearly everything that you need to be a Christian. So read it again with me. Verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Paul um, has gone in the first few chapters of this letter 
from the broad sweeping theological view of everything that God has done for us and everything that God is going to do through us and for all of creation. You could say the first few chapters of his letter are deeply, deeply theological. And we probably could have and should have spent more time exploring all of those things. But what he does now is he turns to the practical. He's been talking about this new creation that God is making, this new humanity, this new reconciling work. And so he turns now from what is theological to now how that works out practically. If this new humanity is being formed, what does it look like? How do we recognize it? And the first thing he does in the beginning of chapter four, as Kirk unpacked for us a few weeks ago, is that that new humanity is not expressed simply in new individuals. It's expressed in a new community, in a new family. The church is the first example and the first fruits of that work that God is doing. He's creating a new humanity, a new gathering of people. And so it's expressed in our unity and our desire to build each other up and, and strive together. And then he goes, um, as life unpacked for us um, last week or a couple weeks ago, he talks about now what the Christian life in that community looks like as it's worked out and expressed. And he talks about Christian morality. And he gives us this sort of central verse. I think um, this is, if you want to know what it means to live a moral life as a Christian, this is what you do. Verse 424, chapter 4, verse 22. He says, take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirits of your minds, and put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. So he gives us this sort of like foundation for Christian ethics, which is not try harder or try more or, or follow better rules. It's put off the old life and put on the new life. If God is making us new, if this new humanity is truly new, then we will be aware of what is old and we will put it away and we will take on what is new. We will live according to what God has made new in us. It's like um, the, the example it's using is this idea of, of garments, of clothing. And you think about this when you wake up in the morning, hopefully, hopefully, not all of us do, but hopefully you get dressed for that day. You anticipate what you int intend to do with that day and you dress accordingly. Dress up hopefully a little bit for work, dress down for relaxing, put on your Sunday best, all those things. And in the same way, our life is to put on the garments that will prepare us for the day ahead, for what it is we intend to do. And we want to live according to the new life that we've been given, the new eternal life that we've been given in Christ. So we put on, we put on Christ. We leave the old, worn out, worthless clothes, not even in the closet, but thrown in the trash. Or, no, we don't even donate them. We don't want anybody else to have them either. We just put them away. Galatians 2.20, which is probably the first verse I ever memorized, it says, I have been crucified with Christ, a very theological statement, a very theological claim. And because that is true, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The reality is, is that we live and act according to our theology. Everybody does. Everybody lives and acts according to what they believe to be true about God and about themselves. This is why Paul says the word to put off the old self. And then he says, in order to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. I think that's really interesting. Paul gets very practical, but throughout he places these very theological ideas because it's not just a matter of trying harder with our um, actions, our efforts. It's a matter of thinking well and rightly with our minds. Put off the old self so that we can think rightly about God, 
and about ourself and live accordingly. So he gets very practical. He talks about a lot of things. Um, sexual morality, bitterness, um, telling the truth, stealing, all kinds of stuff. He lays all these little practical things out for us. But all the way through, he gives us these very clear and dense and deep theological realities that we're to live by and that are at the center of those things. And, and, and I think, I'm just biased because it's right here in front of us right now, but I think these two verses are some of the clearest and most beautiful. And from verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, I think you get the heart of the Christian life, the essence of what it means not just to be a Christian, but to live as a Christian. You get three things. You get probably more than that. We could go deeper and deeper on each one. It's hard not to create a new series of sermons around just one or two verses, but um, we're going to try to cover a few things. And then I want to let the simplicity of those things just carry you into the week and you can meditate on, on them as you go. But at the heart of the Christian life, from these two verses, is imitation, love, and substitution. Imitation, love, and substitution. The first one, imitation. Therefore, be imitators of God. This hopefully indicates to you that the Christian life is not is not about being good for the sake of being good or being good for the sake of your own good name or your own good reputation. In fact, we serve another name. We seek another person's glory. We are imitators or reflectors of God is another way of saying it. And this isn't just some sort of um, cheesy kind of like moral encouragement or, so, or even some sort of un, unattainable moral standard. This isn't a charge that's given to us simply to remind us that you just can't and you're going to fail all the time. This is actually, this idea of being an imitator of God is baked into the very design of all creation. This is the, the purpose, the original purpose of humanity. If you go back to Genesis 1, I'm going to go back and I'm going to read it for you. Genesis 1, verses 26. Twenty-six to twenty-eight. On the sixth day, then God said, "Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness." And it's funny what He says after that. He says, "Let's make him according to our likeness." And what's going to come out of that likeness? What, what is it that result? What's the result of being made in God's likeness? The very next line is, "They will rule." There's a sense in which dominion and rule and care for God's creation is the outflow of our being made in his image. Make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the, him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth with what? Fill the earth with God's image and glory, not ours. Not the, not the goodness of our human, the, the craft that God made in making us. We don't want to show the world how great humans are and all that they can do and accomplish. We fill the world with God's image and God's glory. That's why it says, be fruitful, fill the earth and subdue it. That filling the earth is, a, is an expression of God's dominion and rule and claim over all the creation that is his. So we're to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with God's light. And this is baked in. This idea of being a reflection of God is baked into the very design of all creation and our purpose as humans. 
This is something that many in our culture right now are wrestling with. What's our purpose? What gives me meaning in life, right? And the only thing we know, the only thing that truly gives meaning, the only thing that can ultimately anchor any sort of discussion or debate about the value of human life, any of those things, is ultimately that we are made in God's image and we are reflectors of God's glory. Any other alternative to that can't stand up. Science can't ultimately give you value. Biology can't talk to you about and ascribe to you dignity that means anything other than just sort of some social utility. Being made in God's image is the only thing that ultimately lasts and compels us to understand what it is humans were made for. We were made to reflect God. It's like a mirror. A mirror can provide actually a very shockingly clear and detailed image of the one that it's reflecting. Very clear. It is not the one. The mirror is not the one that it's reflecting, but it can provide a very clear image of the one that it's reflecting. And essentially though, if you were to think about the mirror analogy, I think it's a good one. The mirror analogy is two-dimensional. As clear as that image might be, it's not ultimately the one that it's reflecting. It's only an image and it's a, a two-dimensional one. It's just a picture. And really the essence of sin, the essence of sin is when we try to be more than just the reflection. When we try to actually be God ourselves. When we decide that it's our own image that's worth uh, multiplying and glorying in and we turn away from the one that we were made to reflect. A mirror will reflect perfectly whatever it faces. You wanna be an image of God, you wanna reflect God's image, you face God and you look at him. The problem with man, with all men, ourselves included before Christ renewed us, is that we've taken the image of God that we are given and we've corrupted it and twisted it and used it for our own glory. We've spent all of God's divine attributes on ourselves. And when God saves us, he saves us from this corruption and restores the image of God in, in us. But he does it by not just making us better mirrors, he actually places his own life and spirit in us to live out of us. So that ultimately Genesis 1.28 can actually be true. So that we can just do what he commissioned us to do in the very beginning, is to fill the earth with his glory and his image. So be imitators and imagers, reflectors of God. I used to, um, I'm a, I'm a pastor's kid. How many of you guys knew that? <clears throat> but I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor. And I used to imitate him all the time. He was a church. We, we lived in Canada for a time, and he was a pastor of a church. And there was maybe, I don't know, 200 people there, Christian Missionary Alliance Church. And after he preached, when he was done, he'd walk down the aisle, <laughs> and, uh, and they'd sing some songs, and he'd position himself by the back door so that he could greet everybody on the way out. He could shake hands with everybody on the way out. And I, like a good son, I wanted to be like my dad. So I would dress up in a suit and tie, just like he would, and I would stand next to him, and I would shake hands with everybody, and I would imitate the way he'd do it, putting my hand in his, my pocket, all of his mannerisms, and try to imitate those things. I was pretending, but not in a make-believe fantasy kind of pretending. I was pretending in a kind of way that hopefully, I think, honored him and it expressed at the time one of my deepest desires, which was to be like my dad. And my dad, I think is cool, my dad received that honor, not by um, explaining it away, but by playing along. He allowed me to pretend, and he treated me as if 
I was standing there with him as if I was fulfilling the same role that he was. And I want, I'm kind of getting at this idea of pretending, but not in the make-believe sense. Pretending and imitating is a, is a somewhere in there, I'm not gonna try to unpack all of this, but somewhere in there is the very subtle doctrine of justification, which is a big word. But that, that doctrine basically just says that God has applied the life of Christ to us, not because we are Christ, but simply by his own declaration, such that when he sees us, when he sees us, he sees Christ. When we've put on Christ, God looks at us like we are his beloved son. When God sees us, if we've put on Christ, he looks at us as if we are his beloved son, Jesus. He's pretending along with us. And I think that's what Paul means when he says imitate God as beloved children. We are beloved children, but only because, only because we've put on Christ and we've identified with him and we've clothed ourselves with him in his life. And he's the one that the father announced after he came out of the, out of the river when he was baptized. Remember the story? Clouds opened up and God spoke and he said, this is my beloved son. We receive that blessing now when we put on Christ and we pretend. And God pretends along with us, but not in the make-believe sense. And a pretend is probably not a very precise word, but in the sense that honors and, and ultimately associates us with him. Number two. Number two is love. In the center of these two verses, love is mentioned three times. Therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children. and Walk in love as Christ also loved us. Love surrounds us. It is literally what made us. It's what compels us. And it's the model that we're to follow. Love is our new identity. When we put on Christ, we are now beloved children of God. And because of that, love now shapes the way we walk, the way we live, the shape of our life is love. And then, as if to answer the question that you're already asking, what does that look like? How do we know? What, do we, what, is, what is the shape of love? Well, the shape of love is Christ. Christ is the model for us. At the heart, I think, of real love, you want to understand a good, strong definition of love, a biblical definition of love. It is the giving up of oneself. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. You've heard the verse, greater love is no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. Think of love as giving up oneself or one's desires or one's rights or one's comforts, whatever it is, whatever it is we feel entitled to giving up those things for the sake of someone else. Think of love that way and listen now to 1 Corinthians uh, 13, verse four, that beautiful passage that's often read at at, um, weddings. This description of love that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 13, four. And just think of all the different ways in which we're being called to give something up for the sake of somebody else. Love is patient. 
Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not irritable. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, what we get in our passage from Ephesians is this description of love that Christ has modeled for us. And I want to draw a distinction between two words that are oftentimes linked, and I want to separate them enough that they're clear, that love is not the same as sacrifice, that giving one's life up for someone else is not the same as sacrifice. It sounds like it is sometimes, and at times love is very sacrificial. It is ultimately the considering of others as more important than ourselves. But this is not just some sort of, if we were to think of it as a sacrifice, we'd be thinking of it almost as some sort of temporary way in which we're to live towards others until sin is gone. Then there would be no need for sacrifice. There would be no need for burden bearing and suffering for others. So sacrifice is a very particular aspect of love, a very particular way in which love is expressed, but they're not the same thing. The reason I say that is because verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 13, after description of love, it says, it says, love never ends. Love will continue. Love is an eternal posture towards others, an eternal posture towards others. It will exist into eternity. There will be ways in heaven for us to posture ourselves towards others where we are giving up our own life for the sake of theirs, where we are considering the needs and delights and loves of others in place of our own. And if it never ends, and if we know things like God is love, then love existed prior to creation, and it existed ultimately in God himself. This means that the Father loved the Son, and the Son loved the Father. And the spirit of love, which is that sort of, that self-denying, glorying in the other, right? The Father glorying in the Son, the Son glorying in the, glorying in the Father, that love, has united them forever. But we wouldn't say that the, love, that the Son has been eternally sacrificing himself for the Father, or vice versa. Love is not the same as sacrifice. And I think this is important because when we talk to our spouses or when you think about getting married or maybe after you get married or at your wedding day and you talk about what love is, what you don't want to tell your spouse is you're not descri- when you describe your love for them, you're not describing how much your life dies when you're with them. <laughs> Or that being with them is like climbing onto an altar to be burned or onto a cross to be crucified. It's not the same thing. You love them because you delight ultimately in their delights. You love them because your joy depends on their joy. You consider ultimately their needs and their happiness as a greater pursuit than your own. That is love. And that posture, that walk of love, that way in which we orient ourselves to other people, can and will exist into eternity. So practice it, practice it now. Love is not the same as sacrifice, but now we come to the reality that we are all facing. We are in a world and we live in a world of sin. And there's the curse of death all around us. And so that means that love will at times culminate in sacrifice. Love will ultimately express itself in sacrifice. 
the ultimate model and the measure of love then is Christ who loved us by giving himself up for us. He cared about our needs and our delights more even than his own in that moment. And he did so all the way to the cross. So our love for others will at times require us to die. Our love for others will require us to bear their burdens. Our love for others will require us to suffer because, because Christ has laid down the ultimate standard of love. He loved to death. He loved to death. And his love accomplished something that ours cannot. Ultimately, that it satisfied God. That's what that means, that, that word fragrant. Fragrant offering means a satisfying, a pleasing aroma, a satisfying offering to God. God's love, Christ's love for us, his, his loving us all the way to the point of death was satisfying to God. So this is the last point here. We're imitators, uh, I'm sorry, the Christian life is one of imitation of love. And then this third point is substitution. I wanna read actually um, Philippians chapter two, uh, starting in verse three. It's a long one, but this is another one of Paul's just beautiful, beautiful moments. So I'm gonna read the whole thing. Consider the substitution, the standing in the place that Christ has done for us in these verses, starting in verse three. Keep in mind, he's exhorting us to take on the same attitude, the same posture of love ourselves. So starting verse three, he says, to us, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. That's love. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others, and adopt this same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. This same attitude. It's interesting that this, this description that's about to follow is one of the most beautiful descriptions of the gospel and what Christ has done for us. And it starts with an attitude. It starts with a, an idea in Christ's mind, an attitude that he has towards people that compels these kinds of actions. So take the same attitude in yourselves. Who, this is Christ, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what we have is Jesus taking our sin so that we can take his righteousness. Jesus died our death so that we could live his life. Jesus substituted himself for us. Jesus, Jesus imitated us, took on our likeness, it says. Jesus imitated us so that we could imitate God. Jesus pretended to be like us. And God honored that pretending and acknowledged it and played along and treated us, treated him like he would treat us so that we could pretend to be like him. And he could honor that pretending as well and treat us accordingly. 
This is the substitution of Christ. And if you're looking for some compelling reason to actually love people, if you're looking for some reason to actually take on this shape and to adopt this life and to believe these things and live this way, that's your reason. Christ offered himself for us, loved us to the point of giving himself up as a sacrifice, taking our place before the Father, enduring his wrath and his judgment so that we could be with him and that we could experience that love and live that love out now to the rest of the world.